Thanks so much for joining for another episode of Run the List, a medical education podcast designed by Dr. Naveen Kumar, an attending gastroenterologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Emily Gutowski, a Harvard medical student planning to go into internal medicine, and Dr. Walker Red, myself, a internal medicine resident here at Brigham and Women's Hospital. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. My name is Emily Gatowski, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at Harvard Medical School. I'm here with Dr. Ankit Patel, a third-year nephrology fellow at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and today we're going to discuss a case of hyperkalemia. Dr. Patel, thank you so much for joining us. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. So without further ado, let's go ahead and run the list. case today is a 72-year-old gentleman who has chronic kidney disease, diabetes, and congestive heart failure, and he's coming into the ED with muscle cramps. He tells you that he just started on metoprolol, lisinopril, and spironolactone, and he's just not been feeling well for a couple of hours. He also, upon further interview, tells you that he forgot to take his insulin at home. You take a look at his vital signs, and they're all within normal limits. You get some basic labs, and they come back notable for a potassium of 6.6, and a glucose of 360. So when we look at these labs, Dr. Patel, I think the potassium stands out to us. So thinking about hyperkalemia, how exactly would you define that? Well, great, Emily. Hyperkalemia is definitely one of the, the big points that I think that all trainees really need to be aware of and, and take very seriously. And so I'm glad we can speak about this uh, today. Um, so for hyperkalemia, you know, we're really talking about the serum potassium. So that's the potassium that's outside of the cells in the plasma. And I think one thing to know is what is the change in potassium over time? So some people have uh, potassium levels that are around 5 milliequivalents per liter, while others may normally have a, uh, potassium levels around 3.5 milliequivalents per liter. But typically when I think of hyperkalemia, I'm thinking of a level greater than 5.5. But knowing what that change is, is also really important. So when you think about hyperkalemia, do you have a general framework for thinking about the potential causes? Absolutely, Emily. Great point. So first, I really think about, is there too much potassium coming in, too little potassium going out, or is there a shift of potassium from inside to the outside of cells? And so if we take that uh, step by step, in terms of too much coming in, you know, a number of different foods that we take in, potatoes, tomatoes, Bananas, which is the most favorite of most people, um, can be high in potassium. But typically, if people have normal kidney function, um, the kidneys will be able to excrete whatever is coming in through the diet. Now, it's really when patients have impaired kidney function that we have to start thinking about the role that the ingestion of potassium is playing. The other big category is too little out. So this is really where the kidneys come in. Normally, 90% of potassium in the body is excreted through the kidneys and then 10% through the GI system. And so when we think of too little potassium going out, there's a number of different things that we can think of going on in the kidney. Well, one kind of we already talked about is if there's decreased kidney function. When there's decreased kidney function, the kidney just does not have the ability to deal with the amount of potassium load that needs to be excreted and sometimes can be overwhelmed in that capacity. But if we're thinking more specifically about how potassium is handled by the kidney, potassium is secreted primarily by the tubules in the nephron. And so there's a number of medications that we take that can interfere with that secretion of potassium. 
And the ones that affect the renin-angiotensin aldosterone pathway are the biggest culprits. And so the common medications that we see that affect this is ACE inhibitors like lisinopril for this patient, ARBs that also work on that same pathway like valsartan or losartan, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists like spironolactone, again, which our patient is taking, and then some other medications such as Bactrim, a common antibiotic, which is made up of two different components, trimethoprim and sulfamethoxazole. The trimethoprim actually can cause hyperkalemia by having a direct effect on ENAC. And by blocking ENAC, it doesn't provide the electrical gradient for potassium secretion. So those are kind of induced causes of inability of getting rid of potassium. But there's also causes of patients having impaired potassium secretion that are inborn. And so these are sometimes the distal RTAs that that can develop. These RTAs can also develop actually from a number of other autoimmune diseases, medications, and so forth as well. And lastly, we have to start thinking about shifts of potassium, particularly shifts from inside the cell to outside the cell. And so typically there is a significant potassium gradient that's maintained by our bodies. And there's about a 35-fold higher concentration of potassium inside cells compared to outside cells. And this gradient is maintained primarily by the sodium-potassium ATPase. So this is a, a transporter that is located on the plasma membrane of most of our cells. And it transports potassium into the cell and sodium out. And so we can think of different medications and molecules that regulate the activity of the sodium-potassium ATPase can also affect the gradient of potassium inside and outside the cells, and therefore cause shifts of potassium. A couple of these uh, medications include insulin. So insulin increases the activity of the sodium-potassium ATPase, thereby maintaining the high concentration of potassium inside. In cases such as our patient where there is a decrease in insulin and a lack of insulin, we can sometimes see an increase in hyperkalemia from a decreased activity of the sodium-potassium ATPase. Similarly, the beta-adrenergic system is also involved in regulating the sodium-potassium ATPase. And so medications such as beta blockers like metoprolol, they can decrease the activity of the pump as well and similarly cause transient hyperkalemia. One important thing to remember in terms of shifts of potassium from inside to outside the cell is sometimes they're induced by another cation, um, and most commonly that cation is a proton. So acidosis is a very common cause of shifts of potassium from inside to outside the cell. And the most common type of acidosis that's associated with the shift are non-GAP acidoses. And one of the common times we see this in, in the hospital is with fluid repletion. So normal saline, when given to a patient over time, can lead to a non-GAP acidosis and ensuing hyperkalemia. Now we talked about the amount of potassium that's found in cells. The other reason we can get hyperkalemia is also if we have cell destruction. And so crush injuries or hemolysis can also lead to the release of potassium from inside the cells into the serum and cause uh, hyperkalemia in that setting as well. I've also heard about this concept called pseudo-hyperkalemia. Would you mind explaining to us a little bit about that? Sure. So pseudo-hyperkalemia is kind of a setting where we see high levels of potassium in the blood when we send our blood collections down to the lab and they've been sitting there for a while. And this is particularly because 
as the cells, white blood cells and the red blood cells are sitting at room temperature, they can uh, lyse and release the potassium within within the cells. Now this is most often really seen in settings where we have really high white blood cell counts and particularly when the, these white blood cells that are often immature are really fragile um, and are predisposed to lysing. And so the more white blood cells, the more fr fragile and the more lysis, the more hyperkalemia that's seen from the test tubes. While in fact, in the actual patient serum, these cells are intact and are not causing the hyperkalemia. So just to summarize, there's three major buckets to think about for etiologies. We've got too much coming in, and that can be from ingestion, although that's not usually an issue if you have healthy kidneys. We have too little out or under excretion of potassium, and that can be through the kidneys as a result of medications or genetic causes. And then there's also the concept of shifting and that can be caused by a whole host of things as well. I know there's also the possibility of this being a lab error, and it's always important to recheck the value to make sure that you're not just treating one number. So back to our patient, we're thinking about the potential etiologies of his hyperkalemia, and it sounds like Based on what you said, he's got a couple of acute reasons to be hyperkalemic and also some more chronic reasons. Acutely, he's got this insulin deficiency. He forgot to take his home insulin. And he was also recently put on these new medications, including an ACE inhibitor and uh, spironolactone. He also has kind of background reasons to be hyperkalemic. He's got CKD, so he has decreased excretion of potassium. And then is there also a contribution from his diabetes? Yeah, great question. So diabetes has a lot of different effects, and specifically in the kidney, one of the things it can do is cause this condition called hyperrenanemic hypoaldosteronism. And essentially, they have this phenotype of having a type 4 RTA, a condition where you see hyperkalemia and a mild metabolic acidosis as well. And this is commonly seen in diabetic patients. So let's transition now to our next steps. We know this patient is hyperkalemic. We've thought a little bit about what could be causing it. Is there any further workup you'd want to do at this point? Fantastic, Emily. So now we're getting into the real nuts and bolts of the case. So what do we do now that we know we have hyperkalemia? Well, first thing before we jump too far ahead is do something that you suggested earlier, and that's just to repeat the measurement. On repeat measurements, if there's markers that show there's no hemolysis and the potassium is still elevated, that'll make me concerned. Secondly, the ratio of the potassium inside the cell to outside the cell is a main marker of the electric potential of our cells. And the membrane potential, particularly in the heart, is integral in terms of how it works. And so one thing that I would want to get early is an EKG. Whenever I see changes on the EKG, I obviously become a little bit more concerned about the potassium. The level of hyperkalemia unfortunately, doesn't always relate to EKG changes. And that's why I think it's important to get that EKG because we can't always predict if there are EKG changes by the amount of potassium in the blood. Are there specific EKG findings that you look for with hyperkalemia? Yeah, absolutely. The first thing that we, we would look for are peak T waves. And these are asymmetric T waves that are pointed at their apex. And secondly, we start seeing an increase in the PR interval. And that's kind of a marker now that you can start seeing a widening of the QRS. And then once the QRS is widened, we can start developing a sine wave and ultimately lead it to an elimination of a pulse and asystole. And so that's kind of the sequence of events that we often see with hyperkalemia. So in our patient, we have a repeat measurement of his potassium, and it shows a similarly elevated level. 
So we know that this is a real number. We get an EKG and it's starting to show a little bit of peak T waves. So as we start to transition into thinking about treatment, what would you say our first steps are? So the first things we would want to do now is stabilize the patient. And in terms of doing that, we want to stabilize the membrane potential because we're already seeing effects of the potassium on the membrane potential. And so to do that, we can give some calcium gluconate, and that will help protect the cardiac membrane potential. Secondly, we can shift the potassium from outside the cell to inside the cell. So we talked a little bit about the effects of insulin and beta blockers on this. And so to use this now to our advantage, what we can do is we can give insulin to help activate the sodium potassium ATPase, drive potassium into the cells. And typically, we don't want to make patients hypoglycemic. So if their glucose, serum glucose level, you know, I typically think if it's below 250, then I usually give some dextrose along with that D50. And then a little bit less common treatment in terms of the beta-adrenergic system is we can give a beta-agonist, and this can be an albuterol. Now, one thing to note is that the albuterol that we use for COPD or obstructive airway disease, we use 10 times higher dose for hyperkalemia. But I think the most important thing after these stabilizing measures have been taken place is to get rid of the potassium in the body. And really the best way of getting rid of potassium from the body is through the urine. So we can use loop diuretics, which block sodium reabsorption in the kidney and increase sodium delivery to the distal part of the tubule, such as the connecting tubule and the collecting duct, where potassium secretion occurs. And this can drastically increase the amount of potassium that's excreted in the urine. Now, sometimes people are very tentative about giving loop diuretics in patients that they think are hypovolemic and have hyperkalemia. And I think the important thing there is you can always give more IV fluids. Giving IV fluids with loop diuretics is a very, very effective way of bringing potassium down very quickly. Now, unfortunately, in some of our patients, they have severe kidney disease or they don't make urine at all. And there, the other ways of getting rid of potassium in the body is through the GI system. And so there's a number of different binders that we can use to get rid of potassium through the GI system. And the one that was most commonly used is called K-exalate. It's a good way of getting rid of potassium through the GI system. But there has been these rare but very concerning cases of ischemic necrosis and ischemic colitis. So there is a, a very hefty risk of potential bowel perforation. So especially in your patients that have any colonic pathology, that would be very tentative to give them K-exalate. Fortunately, we have some new medications that are coming out that don't have this side effect. Pateromer and sodium zirconium, ZS9, are two of those new medications that have come out. And Pateromer is already FDA approved and is in practice, so a good one to go to. Great. So again, just to summarize, sounds like we have three main buckets, both in thinking about etiologies of hyperkalemia and then also in treatment. We've got stabilizing the cardiac membrane if we think that the action potential is being affected. We've got shifting of potassium from outside to inside the cell. And then what's kind of the most important and most effective way is to actually eliminate the potassium from the body. A really good way to do that if the patient's making urine is to use a loop diuretic. But if the patient's not making urine, then sometimes we need to turn to the GI system and we can do that with binders like, as you said, pteromer or sodium zirconium. We these days are trying to stay away from K-exalate because of the risk of bowel necrosis, as you mentioned. So what about in patients who don't make urine? When would we turn to 
the use of dialysis. That's a great point. So when patients are on dialysis and they come in with hyperkalemia, we have a very, very low threshold to actually give them an additional dialysis run to lower the, the serum potassium. And again, because they have a really impaired ability to get rid of potassium, dialysis is really the most effective way of getting their potassium back down. Now, on rare occasions, we also have patients that have not previously been on dialysis that are not making a lot of urine. In those cases, we do think of our, our mnemonic that we learn in medical school, A-E-I-O-U. And remember, the E in that is electrolytes. And the most common electrolyte that we have to initiate someone on dialysis for is potassium. But I do want to make one little point there. In my experience, I've never had to put someone on dialysis who's making urine with a loop diuretic. So that just tells you how effective the kidney is at getting rid of potassium effectively. So wrapping up this case, our gentleman is treated with calcium gluconate and insulin. As you remember, his glucose was pretty high when he came in, so he didn't require any D50. He also got a loop diuretic. He got furosemide and gradually his potassium returned to a normal level. His EKG also returned to normal and his symptoms improved. He was taken off of his lisinopril and spironolactone, and he was scheduled for follow-up with cardiology the next day to adjust his cardiac medications. So Dr. Patel, thinking about our key takeaways and some clinical pearls, what would you leave our listeners with? Excellent. In terms of thinking about hyperkalemia, I think, again, coming back to the basics and thinking about the major buckets. Is there too much coming in, especially in patients that have kidney disease? Is there not enough going out and where they can't excrete potassium either from kidney disease, medications, or is there a shift of potassium? Is the potassium coming from inside the cell to the outside of the cell from a number of, again, different medications or cells being broken down? Once that's kind of been delineated, think about treatment. For treatment, again, we want to think about, well, what's the effect of hyperkalemia that's most dangerous to the patient? And that's the effect on the memory potential. So first, we want to stabilize it with calcium gluconate. Then to shift the potassium, which can acutely bring down the serum potassium with insulin and beta agonist. And most importantly, to eliminate the potassium, preferably through the urine with loop diuretics, sometimes through the GI system with potassium binders, and if really necessary, through dialysis. And from the renal perspective, we're always happy to help in a patient with hyperkalemia. But I think for you, it's important to try and work on these few things before calling renal, particularly loop diuretics. They're our best friends. All right. Sounds like a plan. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Patel. We learned a lot. Thanks for having me. Please join us again soon on Run the List.